TL Talk Radio, Season 7, Episode 30. Welcome to Season 7, Episode 30 of TL Talk Radio. I'm Lynn Funy-Hatton. And I'm Randy Ziegenfuss. Today we're speaking with our good friend and frequent guest here on TL Talk Radio, Attorney Larry Altman. Larry currently works as a consultant for schools, helping them develop legally compliant policies, protocols, and procedures for Title IX, anti-bullying, student suicide prevention, Section 504, and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. He's also a distinguished member of the American Law Society and serves as an adjunct professor for Avila University located in Kansas City, Missouri. So first things first, Larry, we have to wish you a happy birthday, and it is a momentous occasion. I don't know if I'm permitted to give the number of years. Oh, certainly you can. I mean, so happy, happy 70th. We're glad to have you back on the podcast, Larry. It's always a pleasure to be here. So let's get our conversation started today with a personal story about protecting the rights of transgender and special education students. How did you become interested in this topic? Well, I have to really give all the credit to my wife, Gail. Uh, married <laughs> you give a lot of credit years. to Gail. Well, she deserves it. She's <laughs> had to put up with me for almost 48 years. Uh, she was retired. She was retiring as a special education teacher in the St. Louis metropolitan area, which is where I had lived my entire life. And I was a frustrated attorney getting sick and tired of what I was doing. And she said, I have a gift for you. Why don't you get into this field of, of special needs children? And once I started studying it, I basically fell in love with it and took it under wing and developed what I tried to develop was a niche in it. And then ultimately, um, we worked together for 10 years in St. Louis, and that's what we dedicated our practice for. And then Gail is a cert under, under in Missouri is a certified mediator for special education disputes. And she was mediating a dispute across the state in Kansas City, Missouri, between the Kansas City, Missouri Public School District and some parents and the director of special ed said we need an in-house attorney and she says i got just the guy for you and uh, i drove her to kansas city because she didn't like to drive across state and she calls me on the cell phone and says i found you a new job and we're moving to kansas city that was it he makes it sound easy randy oh yes he does but he's got all this rich legal background that we want to delve into today so as an attorney, you are clearly adept at all the recent case law. And one of the things that we want to talk about today is this idea of the value of words, the how and why of words and how they have meaning. Uh, so let's dig into a couple cases that I know you're familiar with. And let's start with Bostick versus Clayton County, Georgia. And what did we learn from this case about the value of language? Well, Justice Gorsuch was... Uh the, the author of an opinion that was six to three in 2020, where the question was whether or not the Civil Rights Act of 1964, Title VII, uh, provided protection uh, for uh, sex discrimination against people of the LGBT community. Uh, Justice Gorsuch looked at the words of Title VII, and what he said, when as he made his determination that it did protect individuals under Title VII, he used the dictionary and looked at the words of the of, used in the statute, such as discrimination. And then he looked up the word sex, uh, and uh, and he said, "Look what it," and and said, "Using those words, what does the dictionary say?" 
And so as he went down the path uh, and said, here's the dictionary, here's the wording of the statute, there can only be one conclusion. And that is, is that the LG, that if you're discriminated against because of sex, necessarily the LGBT people were protected because when they, if they were taking action against someone, they were doing it because of their sex. And so he upheld those rights. Uh, and what he also indicated is that individuals have a right to rely upon the words that are written on a piece of paper by their, by anyone, specifically when Congress enacts federal laws, we as a public have to be able to rely upon the exact words used in that statute. And it is not the court's job to add words, subtract words, or create a meaning that doesn't exist in the dictionary. So from, from your legal perspective, are you, are you a lawyer that's like, go black and white here? Or is there ever opportunities to sort of move within some wider guardrails there? It's not a matter of being black and white. I do believe that whatever that statute says, that's what it should mean. And that I am not, or any rule, let's just say school district A writes a policy and uses words. If I'm a parent or a school administrator, I have the absolute right to depend upon what was written for my guidance. I'm not adding, I'm not subtracting, I'm not being, uh, it's not like I'm a strict constructionist. It's the bottom line is I write words on a piece of paper. And it says, if you run a, if you speed limit is 35 miles per hour, it doesn't say, but you can go one mile an hour over, that's okay. Now I know there's some leniency by some people who will enforce that law, but the speed limit is 35 miles an hour. We know exactly what that means. And when, and Thank I tried, God for that. <laughs> yeah, yes. And so when Justice Gorsuch said, look, this, these are the words that the Congress used. They didn't put anything in there that said, for example, what the argument against it was, is that there was nothing in there that used the word biological before the word sex. There was nothing in the statute that says legal sex, meaning what would be appearing perhaps on a birth certificate. It simply used the word sex. And any other result would out require us to add words that don't exist in that statute that Congress passed. And then Justice Roberts has said in the past, in cases, that if Congress doesn't like something, how we rule upon something, they can pass another law. They can amend what they have. And they've done that with the American with Disabilities Act. So that if the Congress decided, no, what they meant was biological sex, they can amend Title VII to put the word biological in front of the word sex, now we have a different story. But they didn't do that. And Justice Gorsuch further went on to say, simply because no one thought about that when the Civil Rights Act was passed, tough luck, they're aware of it now. And so why not? And really, this is a follow-up to what Justice Roberts wrote in a unanimous opinion in 2017 when he was interpreting the Individual Disability Education Act. When the Supreme Court had ruled in 1986 that, the, that school districts must provide some educational benefit to students who qualify with a disability in the IDEA. And he said, for some reason, over 30 years, people thought that meant any. And he said, what part of the English language don't you understand? The word some does not equal the word any. So Justice Gorsuch was not the first. And Justice Roberts joined in this opinion, which would be consistent with his 2017 uh, interpretation of, of what the court said, what they laid down on a piece of paper, because words have meaning. End of story. 
and that idea of words have meaning. I think our politicians, who oftentimes write these, or their their uh, aides that write these uh, this legislation, oftentimes they don't understand the sort of second, third order repercussions of some of the language that they select. And I know here, whenever they write in Pennsylvania, whenever the legislature is writing legislation that impacts education, there's stuff that comes out that we oftentimes think like, what were they thinking? Um, And they oftentimes don't involve the people who are impacted in that too. But that's just one of the connections I'm making to Mm -hmm. to your, your point about the importance of language and then how it gets interpreted once it's law and there become questions around implementing that. Um, and then we oftentimes get into the gray area of what to do. <laughs> we're going to see this coming up in the next couple of years, 20 or 30 years ago, the, as allowed under the constitution, the United States house, and the United States Senate passed an amendment to the United States Constitution called the Equal Rights Amendment, which was crafted to make make it clear that the Constitution allowed women and men to have exactly the same rights. Constitution requires 75% of the states to approve any, the legislatures of 75 states to approve constitutional amendments because it become, before it becomes an amendment. When Congress though passed the Equal Rights Amendment, it added on language that said that the states had to approve the amendment within a specified period of time. It gave so many years that was once expanded by by the Congress. Uh, within the last month or two, the, the the a state voted to uphold or, or approve the Equal Rights Amendment, which would have put us at the 75% level. But a federal district court ruled that no, you're too late. You're out of time. It doesn't mean anything. The reason that case will go to the United States Supreme Court is because when you read Article 5 of the Constitution, there is not one word in there that says there's a time limit for states to approve a constitutional amendment. So the question will come up before perhaps these same nine judges mm-hmm. is, was the Congress allowed to add words that the Constitution did not have in its written version? And so if Justice Roberts and Justice Gorsuch were to be consistent with their prior opinions, I would think they would say Congress did not have that authority because if the founders wanted to have a timeline for approval of a constitutional amendment, they certainly could have added that to Article 5. They did not. So we're going to be back in this debate on a very critical issue whenever that case reaches the United States Supreme Court. Interesting. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting to see the sort of foreshadowing of it too, right? Like what's, what's possible. And, you know, in, in, I say our roles, but Randy's retired now, but (laughs) in, in my role, like I read the guidance and you often are making the judgment call of what does that mean? Or how does that um, impact learners? Or could it be this? And it does get gray and fuzzy. And I can see how that is a real challenge when you're dealing with some of these, um, you know, more difficult issues Well, I had related a, to rights. I had a case that I had to, was asked an opinion about last year. And this was a school district that had a policy that said that before a special needs child could be dis- dismissed early for the day upon a parent request, that it must be approved by the principal or his or her 
designee. Now, when the evidence came about is that the principal had six or seven designees and they never communicated with one another about what was proper and what was not. They just went off on their own tangent. And it turned out that sadly, when whoever made the determination to dismiss this child and turn the child over to an adult that appeared there, bad things happened to the child. Well, the evidence was how many designees, we had all these designees. And, and then the question that I raised, what does the word designee mean? It means one. Well, the lawyer argued for the school does. Well, everybody knows it means more than one. And I said, really? Then why didn't you guys, when you wrote the policy, put in the word designees with an S on the back end? And why don't you look at the dictionary and see what the difference is between the two words? The case went to a federal district court judge and told the school district's lawyer, don't let the door hit you as you leave. If you wanted to say designees, you would have written that word. You wrote a singular word, one, not more than one, but one. End of story. Mm -hmm. And so local, and again, at that time, when that case was presented, uh, we had the Supreme Court case on special education. We didn't have the Bostic opinion there yet, but it was the same principle is that the Chief Justice Roberts said, be precise. What do the words say? Mm -hmm. And so the federal judge said, we're done here. Great. We need to now look at all our policies and make sure they say designees. <laughs> no, no it, it, it may be. It, if that's what you want, that's certainly appropriate. Uh -huh. I'm yeah. not disputing that the yeah. school have the authority to say plural. That's sure. okay. Right. We just that have to be intentional about it. That was not the, that was not the debate. Mm -hmm. Did the school have the authority? to use more have, for the principal could have more than one person. Now yeah. there were other rules. The parents had to know who these people were. Sure. Not that part. But if the school district policy is the, that we can have more than one in a building besides the principal, that if that had been the written words on the piece of paper, game over, that's sure. certainly appropriate. But mm -hmm. if you're going to use a word, then make sure you understand that that word could be singular as it was here. Use the word singular designee, not with the S on the back end. And yeah, yes, that is critical. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And important to be very intentional. So it gives you a new, it gives you or me personally, a new light to look at that um, and really think about the ramifications of that particular case. So let's shift over to another case and talk about Blue Springs School District. Um, what did we learn there? Well, this case is a little older than it was before the Supreme Court ruled on Title VII. This was a school case in which the question was, could a, did a LGBTQ student have rights, certain rights under Title IX, and that that student could not be discriminated against under Missouri law because of sex? Sex is one of the, in, in, the Missouri has a, what we call the Missouri Human Rights Act, and I don't know what the equivalent is in Pennsylvania, and I know Maine has something similar, but the words were precise. It talked about age, it, talk, this, it talks about age, it talks about race, and it talks about the word SEX. The judge, the judge in that case said, what does that word mean? And again, looked at the dictionary and says it has, this student was, quote, trans from female to male, and you were discriminating against that child because of his sex. Well, what he did is he looked at, he said, that word has a has a meaning. And you you admitted that basically that's what you've done. And now the argument being made, and it was the argument made by the dissent 
again, they were they were arguing first to be a strict constructionist review of the statute. Yet, as this judge pointed, as Judge Wilson pointed out, yeah, to get to your result, though, you have to word, add the words biologic or legal. It doesn't exist in the Missouri Human Rights Act. So he also looked at a dictionary and looked at what prior case law said about the word SEX. And he said, that's it. We're done here. And if the legislature wants to change that rule, he didn't go on further. But if the Missouri legislature doesn't like that outcome, then they can amend the Human Rights Act and add the words biologic or legal. But they didn't have that. then. So the LGBTQ student was protected and could proceed with his action under the Missouri Human Rights Act against the school district. Again, the lesson is be precise. Mm -hmm. And if the legislature speaks, we as the citizenry have a right to look at their words and say, oh, these words say this. And both judges, both Judge Wilson and Judge Gorsuch and Justice Roberts before have said, yeah, we understand there's the real world colloquialism and all these other things, but their answer was, so what? When you're talking about determinations that impact a school or a business, and there's a federal or state law that has written certain things in it, as Justice Gorsuch said, we have a right to depend upon the words written on the page. End of story. So, Randy, that may cover a bit what you're talking about. It's certainly that when we talk to each other, we're not as precise. I've got that. But when it comes down to what does it really say, what does it really mean, we've got two Supreme Court justices and a Missouri Supreme Court justice says, saying, what does the words on the papers say? You get to rely upon them. You don't get to add. You don't get to subtract. Those are the words. And that's what we have to live by. So I'm curious before I ask my next question, you gave some cases where language was very, it is what it is, and case closed. Are there any cases that you're aware of where the, the judge ruled the language was a little bit more flexible? Well, it's not a matter of flexibility. What they will do is they certainly are a lot of cases where the, where, and I can't think of one off the top, where the, the judge will say, well, and I know this was the, well, let me step back from the abyss for a minute. Justice Roberts, on two occasions, has criticized the language used in the Affordable Health Care Act, saying it is poorly worded and poorly written. And it leaves a lot to be desired if it comes down to writing something that gives us clear, precise meaning of what they really want. Yet, he said, despite the ambiguity, he looked at the history of the law and he says, our job up here is not to reverse Congress as long as they have not violated the Constitution. And so despite how poorly written that language is, according to the chief justice, that doesn't mean it's unconstitutional. So you get that is certainly a case where the chief justice said, man, what were you guys thinking about when you wrote this? This is grammatically, I guess he would have given them an F is my (laughs) guess. Uh, And uh, and so, yes, Randy, there certainly and that's when that's when you have when when it's not precise, when you get into an argument of that nature of constitutionality, uh, there is no doubt, at least from the Justice Roberts' point of view and his historical context of the Constitution, is the court then has got a real problem in its hand because of the poorly written nature of the statute, of what whether or not that's enough is, is the poor grammar, poor spelling mean it gets tossed for being unconstitutional. And Justice Roberts hasn't said we, we that's not our job up here at the court. Yeah, so interesting. So... Always, always uh, wonderful having a conversation with you, Larry, and always leaving with uh, 
some nuggets and some ideas. But if I asked you, what would you like our listeners, mostly school leaders, to leave with from this conversation? I would tell school leaders that when they have rules written out, that they should go back and visit them and make sure that the language they use is precise, that everybody's on the same page, and that there can't be a doubt of what the words mean that you've written on the page. Let's take the example again of that you want to have a policy that says that if a special needs child is to be dismissed early and the principal is not available, that we are going to allow the principal before the school year to appoint, do I want one designee or do we want multiple? You'd want to go back and visit that and see what is it we really want Mm -hmm. to have done there. Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? Is it unlimited? That's the kind of things that you would want to go back and look at. I have not read, in addition, I have not read this case yet, but a case came across the wire yesterday where the court said that the language inside a student's IEP, whatever's written, that's what it means. And the school tried to argue, well, you know, what we meant was, what we meant was, and the judge in the federal district court judges, yeah, you may have meant that, but what's in the IEP? That's not what you said. The parents have an absolute right to depend upon the written word. So since we have to write IEPs, since we have to write 504 accommodation plans, and the schools are generally the author of those, I would be telling my staff, be precise, be clear. What is it exactly you want to make sure happens here? And if that's what you want to make sure happens, make sure you're using the right words. Don't leave any guesses out there that we meant to say. Once you make that argument, you've walked down this path that already one federal judge in a district court level has rejected. A district court judge in Missouri has rejected. And Justice Gorsuch would say, what are you doing here? Use the words that you want to say. That's why they're in the dictionary. So that would be the word of caution I would give schools. Be precise. So I'm already thinking about some of the work that we need to do and reflecting on what you just shared there. Um, Larry, so you've given us some homework. (laughs) Well, that's a good thing, right? And if I can help you out, let me know, because that's what people have asked after these cases have come down. I've been asked, Larry, and I'm not a great grammar guy, but I don't want to leave there and believe I'm this English grammar person. But I would want to have a discussion with someone like you. What do you really want to say here? Mm -hmm. And then I would look at the words and say, do you think that's really what it says? And then if the answer is no, well, how do we make it? more precise. Yeah. And unfortunately, we don't typically realize that until we get into a situation where we want to use the policy to defend a decision. And then we realize that it's not as clean or as clear as it should be. So good advice. Certainly have had that experience. All right. Before we invite you to share what's next for you, we have a couple of rapid response questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Who's one expert our listeners should connect with to learn more about the rights of transgender and or special education students? There are groups in almost every state that have representatives of the LGBT community. And if people go on, and it's what I do, I will tell you that now. I have people in my community that for years I've, I've, dealt, I've had communication with. Go on those websites and those web pages and look up who are running those organizations and contact them for assistance. That's where I would be directed. All right, good advice. How about um, if you're recommending a book to our listeners, what might that be? Well, it depends upon the topic. 
if it's if you're talking about sexual harassment and bullying, well, of course, there's my book, the second book that came out last year. That's a pretty good resource. And I've been using that when when schools have identified me as an expert and the other side says I'm not, judges say, well, what do you mean? He's written two books on the topic. Mm-hmm. What else do you want from him to do? So that's a possibility. But I'm sure there are other books out there. All right. Last last uh, question here. What online site, resource, or person do you learn from regularly? There's a site that I've used for years called Special Ed Connection, written by LRP. Uh, it gives me up-to-date daily information. It's the jump part, jump start for me for almost every research project I have because they will alert me to something that's been published uh, within 24 hours. And I have found them ahead of other age groups uh, when, it, when they've published something when it relates to education. Uh, for example, last week when President Biden established, uh, sent uh, two administrative orders out regarding Title IX, this organization had it online in a copy version for PDF within an hour of its publication. Another group that I sometimes deal with, it took them 72 hours to get that same document out. Mm. My students got to see it the very next day mm-hmm. because of this group. And so they are they are just on top of it and tuned to it all the time. All right. Excellent. Thanks for sharing those resources. And we'll link them in the show notes. And it also sounds like we have another podcast in the future on Title IX changes, right? <laughs> uh, there is no doubt that we will have that. But there's actually something else, Randy, that we need to keep an eye out on. Um, and it's a, and it's a case that I think every school official and parent should be worried about. Uh, there is a case coming out of one of the circuit courts where that's going to head to the, that's heading to the United States Supreme court now where a student, uh, sexually harassed, bullied a, another student online using that student's own computer using sending the harassing email to the victim's personal account and was not on campus when the text went out. There was no doubt, and I haven't read the text, that the student's uh, communication to the victim violated the school policy sexual harassment rules. The student and his lawyer argued, however, since they were not on campus, since they did not use school property, and that the email went to the child to her private server that to punish the student violated the student's first amendment rights of free speech and therefore the school district could not administer punishment Mm. to the perpetrator (laughs) and the federal court of appeals upheld that that case is now in front of the united states supreme court as a former administrator and you're you're an administrator lynn you're you're an administrator Think about what happens if the U.S. Supreme Court says, you know what, that young man is right. It violates the First Amendment. Think of the loophole that this will create for bullies and sexual harassers Mm -hmm. who go out and say, well, I got a way that I can harangue somebody. I'll Mm -hmm. just go off campus and send the emails that way. And there are a lot of parent groups and school organizations that are filing briefs to turn that case around and, tell, and, the, and telling the United States Supreme Court, you can't uphold this. And it would also violate, or not violate, the Secret Service would say that if that takes place in their 2019 publication where the school is unable to protect a victim 
the danger to the health of the victim will be greatly increased because of the trauma and impact. In addition, what the Secret Service says their research shows that the victims will start taking matters into their own hand and that this could increase school violence because what will the victim do if the school can't protect them? They'll come in with a gun and somebody's going to get killed. Mm. And so that Supreme Court, that Secret Service publication is being attached to these arguments to the Supreme Court saying you can't do this. And there are always exceptions of the First Amendment in schools. Students do not have the same First Amendment rights in schools as in the public private sector. That's been history since the Tinker decision. And so they're being the Supreme Court is being asked to make another exception to the First Amendment. And for the sake and safety of our children, I hope that they say that the schools can certainly enforce those types of situations and, and protect the victims. That's mm -hmm. the one, Randy, that's coming down. It's being argued, I think, this term. That may come out before even we see all the new Title IX stuff. So lots of possible things on the podcast docket with yes. Larry. All right. Always a pleasure chatting with you. And we know in your immediate future, your plan is to celebrate your birthday. Correct. But is there anything in your longer-term future that you'd like to share with us that you're working on? Well, I'm looking at keeping an eye on those the new Title IX regs. So once that, whatever happens there, and we will have new Title IX regs, I'll be writing about that. I'm keeping a very close eye on this First Amendment case, and I will be writing on that as well. Excellent. In addition, as long as Avila will keep me, I'll teach. Sounds great, Larry. So always appreciate some conversation with you. Always leave with a little bit of homework and a different perspective. And um, you always make the ideas very accessible to us and to our listeners. So thank you for that. My pleasure and honor. To learn more about Larry's work, you can visit some of the links in the show notes. We link some of the former episodes that Larry um, participated in related to student mental health, the bystander effect, and even um, an earlier Title IX episode. Each episode, we leave you with a question to think about with the idea of provoking reflection and conversation. This episode's question, how will you review your written policies and procedures to ensure they say what you intend? If you've enjoyed this episode, would like to comment or check out the resources shared today, visit the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season seven, episode 30. That's all for this episode. We'll be back next week with another conversation featuring other innovative thought leaders. Thanks again, Larry, and happy 70th. Thanks so much. Bye-bye, Larry. Bye-bye.